My guest for this portion of WGTD's morning show is sometimes described as one of an extraordinarily rare species, a woman who owns a successful software development company. Uh, her name is uh, Anna Murray, and actually she and her husband, Chris Moscovitis, uh, own TMG eMedia. And uh, uh, Anna Murray is someone who can speak to the world of technology from a very rich uh, personal uh, perspective and uh, expertise and uh, a nationally recognized technology uh, consultant, the author of the critically acclaimed The Complete Software Project Manager. And we're going to be talking with her about a, a couple of different issues that involve technology and in particular the presence of women in the technology center, a sector, something that once upon a time was extremely rare, maybe not quite as rare as it once was. And uh, we'll touch on some other issues as well. Anna P. Murray, we welcome you to the morning show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So tell us, first of all, your own story of becoming so interested in the technology sector. Uh, at what point in your life did that occur and for any particular reason? I, was, I kind of say I fell into it a little bit by accident. Um, I was a young person. I, at first, I was a teacher. And then I was fascinated by, at that time, CD-ROMs were on the cover of Time magazine. And I made the transition to an educational software publisher, and that was right at the dawn of the Internet. And the educational software publisher sort of said, you know this Internet thing? We, we kind of don't think it's going anywhere. And at that moment, I took the initiative and I grabbed a bunch of programmers, and we started an early-stage web company in 1996. Hmm. I remember a few years ago, I mean, and by a few, I mean probably 20 years ago, maybe, maybe longer than that, uh, doing an interesting interview with a couple of local professors uh, around the whole issue of why there were so few women who were going into the field of computer science. And one of them was in the field, and the other was a psychology professor uh, at the same local university. And uh, they actually did some kind of study on this. And I remember having this very intriguing conversation with them and, uh, and getting from them a, a few theories which they had developed on why it was that, at least at that point in time, so few women were going into the field of computer science. And of those few that would enter the field, how many of them would then leave the field <laughs> for, right. for various reasons. First of all... Uh, what is your perspective in terms of how much that has changed over the years? How rare was it when you first entered the, the field, and how rare is it today? Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I think if you take an even greater historical perspective, it, it kind of starts to surface some of the issues. So back in the 1950s and 60s, women were the few, first, at that point, that you called them computer operators. They were the ones doing the punch card and the code. And I think that's because, I mean, really, you know, it was thought of as more of a clerical job. Oh, women can operate that machine. And then as it became much more prominent and sexy and higher paid, women exited the profession. 
So then what happened is probably in the 80s and 90s, we were very hopeful because we saw an uptick of women in engineering fields. At that point, most computer science was located in electrical engineering departments. But then things kind of took a left turn. And over the last decade or so, the percentage of women in computer science departments has dropped. So there's been a waxing and waning over, you know, the course of the last half century of women in these technical fields. And I think another perspective is that, you know, we see certain professions as society as male or female, and that shifts over time. And it usually has to do with power and compensation. So bank teller used to be a male job, right? It was an authoritative job. It dealt with money. It dealt with math. And now and then bank teller became a female job. It, it was already beginning to lose uh, prestige. And now, well, now you can hardly find a bank teller. But, but I think it illustrates the point that our perspective towards professions and how, how powerful they are and how highly compensated they are really affects the gender balance. I know that one of the theories that they also uh, presented at the time, and perhaps this was especially true way back then, is the fact that the perception might be that to be a computer science major or in the field of computer science was likely to be a rather impersonal experience, maybe in, in large measure a, a solitary kind of uh, experience or, or, or exercise that... that uh, might be a, a, a real turnoff or a point of discouragement um, for a woman who might be seeking something in which contact with others, meaningful uh, exchange uh, and collaboration is really uh, important. So their thought was that maybe to some extent uh, women were, were making assumptions about what this field was like, and maybe uh, at the time, maybe some of those assumptions were more true than they are today. I'm not sure, but what would you say to that notion of, of being in the technology sector as being sometimes kind of a, a solitary exercise? I suspect that in, in point of fact, in actuality, it, it really isn't that at all. Well, you know, firstly, I think you're there are plenty of women introverts. You know, I think that there's a societal perspective that women are the connectors and the relators. And, you know, who knows what's, what's inborn and what's created by society. <clears throat> you know, the second thing is that we do know that just by changing the, no the nomenclature in a, course, in, a, in a course catalog, that you can affect the number of women who enter that class. So, for example... Uh, young men are more attracted to, let's say, the equipment side of things, like the Wi-Fi triple jammer, and we're going to, you know, build servers or whatever we're going to do. And women tend to be more attracted to outcomes. So, let's say, a course catalog title that said that implied, you know, we're going to address vaccinations in the developing world through data science. Now, that tends to be more attractive to the, the female student. So there, I, I agree that there is a, a component of how, per, how we perceive a class or a profession. I would also suggest that there are there's a broad mixture of temperaments and personalities among both men and women. But, but, but that we do know, that, that women will be more attracted to classes and to a profession based on sort of 
the outcome or the purpose of just not just like data science, not so attractive to females. Data science in pursuit of solving hunger in the developing world, more attractive. Fascinating. So for you being in this field, what, what has it meant to you? What, what have been the greatest frustrations? What have been uh, the, the, the points of greatest satisfaction? Well, I'll start with the satisfaction. You know, owning, first of all, it was tremendous fun to be in the cutting edge of a field that was just developing. I mean, to feel like you were building people's first websites and in sort of inventing what the thing is, that, that was super fun. And also, you know, although I didn't really understand this aspect of it when I was much younger, but owning a company and paying people salaries and giving them health care and paying for their children to go to college and helping them, you know, buy a house, that was a hidden benefit that I had no idea existed when I was 27 years of age. You know, I mean, that feels very, very good. Um, on the downs, and then, of course, te- you know, temperamentally, if you're, if you're wired to run your own company, you know, a lot of the stresses and how you make payroll and stuff, they just become part of the background noise. So, but it, it, being a woman in this field has been, uh, it has shown me a side of human nature that I kind of thought we'd solved, to be honest with you, you know, when I was, I, was, I was young and I was educated in the 80s by hopeful people who were baby boomers and, you know, taught me about feminism and that the world had changed from, you know, the 40s and 50s. So, you know, when I entered the, the business world, I, I thought they had changed. And, you know, the common things that women report, like being interrupted, women are interrupted three times more than, often than men. And, uh, have, you know, my husband and I are now in business together, and I would, would say something in a board meeting and, you know, be ignored or shouted down, and ten minutes later he would say the same thing, and Eureka, it's brilliant. You know, it, those kinds of things still really exist. So that that part of it was a little depressing. Hmm. I did want to ask you about uh, the collaboration between uh, you and your husband, Chris Moscovitis, uh, who, in a sense, have put a company together or put two different companies together, uh, and what this collaboration has been like for the two of you. You know, Chris and I get along really well in the professional sense. We actually work together professionally. I can see a lot of couples where this wouldn't work. In fact, I've certainly been in relationships, um, different relationships where I could never work with a person. For us, it's fun. You know, we approach business in the same way. Um, He has a level of brilliance that is different from mine and very, very complimentary. Uh, So it's a well-coordinated dance. Sometimes we work on the same projects together. Sometimes we work on different projects together. And for us, it's really been a joy. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Anna P. Murray, and uh, she and her husband have TMG E-Media, a technology management group, and uh, they uh, do consulting on uh, various matters related to technology. When you are working with clients... Typically, what are sort of the maybe misassumptions or 
misunderstandings that uh, sometimes drive the perspectives of your clients? I mean, what, what are the kind of new perspectives that you need your clients to adopt when it comes to understanding the role of technology and, and perhaps what they need to be doing differently in, in order to serve their businesses more effectively? Well, you know, I think a lot of clients, uh, I, I would like to see a shift in the, at the business level, at the strategic business level, uh, the thinking about technology. So, for example, let's say you were a CEO or COO, president, manager, director, whatever you want to say, of a company. And you have to deal with your finances and you have some budgetary issues to accomplish, you're going to be expected to read a P&L. And you probably took an accounting class, and you kind of get have your head around the basics of accounting, accounting on a cash basis, accounting on a accrual basis. These may sound like arcane terms, but a lot of CEOs are perfectly comfortable dealing with that. And yet I find when it comes to dealing with, you know, I don't know, we need to scale the database or we need to migrate data, whatever, you know, a lot, a lot of CEOs, directors, managers kind of look at you like, oh, don't talk to me in that crazy language. You know, so they go from being perfectly capable of dealing with other arcane matters to like, I, I don't know how to birth no babies, you know, in this <laughs> area. And, and, it's, and it's actually a little shameful. You know, I think we need to sort of, I think we need to sort of grow up um, as business people and realize that in 2019, you know, it's your responsibility. Get a book for dummies. You know, I, I don't know what it takes, but it's your responsibility to get it. And when I go into a client, it's my responsibility to help them get it. Because, you know, being heard is not the job in the, in the real world. Being heard is not the job of the listener. It's the job of the communicator. So hmm. you got to figure out a way to get the message across. You have to be an excellent teacher. I often say you have to be an excellent Secretary of State because often technology projects involve multiple departments, none of whom report to each other. So, so you need that coordination. So it's about understanding that we need to understand technology and then coordinating the effort in a way that's a little like, you know, sometimes negotiating peace in, in, in the world. <laughs> hmm. How about the whole matter of cybersecurity? Uh, I wonder, first of all, in general, do your clients tend to not take this matter seriously enough, or is it a, a point of, of clients maybe being overly concerned, maybe paranoid about threats that aren't uh, actually likely to be meaningful threats to what they do? I mean, by and large, where do your clients tend to fall in that continuum? And, and what are the kinds of guiding principles that you think can be helpful? Oh, I don't think they're overly concerned. I'll say that. I mean, with one uh, notable exception, which is a multinational that I work with, I, I think that most clients are, I always say, especially when my husband, who's written a book on cybersecurity, gets very frustrated, I always say, look, Chris, this is like cigarettes and seatbelts in 1979. You know, it's like my hmm. granddaddy smoked till he was 97. Fine. You know, I don't want it. Oh, I seatbelts nonsense. So, uh, so that's where we are with cybersecurity. I mean, 
really seriously, even companies that you would think you would you would not think were um, should be out to lunch on this really are. So, you know, it's it's really we're really at the beginning. We're very much at the beginning, which is, you know, is your data encrypted? Do you have firewalls? Do you have a cybersecurity program? Do you have uh, a recovery program if your data uh, becomes corrupted? Do you have a PR management program? I mean, people, and part of the reason, as you can see as I'm going through the list, part of the reason that people are in avoidance is that it's overwhelming. And it is overwhelming. And it's very discouraging because, you know, it's not a question, which is what all us cybersecurity folks who deal in this world say, it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Well, if I'm going to fail anyway, you know, <laughs> but, but the truth is you need to have some, you need to take step one so you can take step two. Because even if we are fighting a losing battle, which we may be, you will be the one that will have the, the PR plan in place and the recovery plan in place. And also, you know, there's what I like to call the pain in the ass factor. If your company is more of a pain in the ass to break into than another company, then you, you fall down on the list in terms of being a target. Mm. So the level of vulnerability really matters. I mean, it's probably not possible to make any company completely impregnable, but if, it, if your company is more difficult to penetrate uh, by an outside threat, likely they will move on to a more inviting target uh, to which they can gain easier access. Yes, that's, just, that's human nature, and that will always be true. But, but companies do really have to, I mean, there will be, you know, so why, okay, why are we at seatbelts and cigarettes in 1979 when it comes to cybersecurity? The reason is people aren't having to pay for it. And, but that, that will change, you know, as, as individuals, our business lives and our individual lives are blended. So your, per, your data, your email, exists because you exist in the world as a business person, because you go to the doctor, because you pay taxes. All of, all of that data is, exists because you have to interact in the world. It is extremely painful to have your identity stolen. Because in, if, if someone, for example, is able to, let's, let's put together a scenario that involves social engineering and a little hacking. You know, somebody gets your email address and somebody gets your password through a hacking attempt. Okay, now they, some, they go to, well, we all know that Facebook has been releasing data like, you know, in a cascade. So now they're a, they know your mother's maiden name, they know your dog's name, all of these security questions. Now you're building a scenario with, uh, where someone can hack into your bank account. And now they take a dollar, they take $2. Nobody knows this is next time they take $10,000. Well, in the banking, in this world, in the electronic banking world, different from the world of checks, you only have 90 days to report that. So if you go beyond that 90 days, and some of us aren't so great, you know, about checking on things constantly. Maybe it's a minor account, maybe it's a savings account, you know, you're not in the habit of checking on. That, that, the bank doesn't have to replace that money. Now, that hurts. And what I just narrated is a real-world scenario that we are acquainted with through the work that we do. So now, now people are hopping mad. Now we have a class action suit. So 
my point is that the reason that people aren't taking these things seriously is that nobody's having to pay the consequence of not paying attention to cybersecurity. Hmm. How much do you find uh, uh, that a challenge is in, in the work that you do, the fact that we're often talking about highly technical matters, I mean, by their very nature, often involving nearly impregnable uh, terminology. Uh, and, and for people who are experts in their own field, but not experts in, in technology, uh, can it be difficult to, for instance, make the case for, for, for sweeping changes that one might make uh, within your own company? Uh, what kind of a challenge is that for you? I think it's one of the biggest challenges. In fact, if you don't have buy-in at the board level and at the, you know, the ownership uh, management level, you're probably not going to get very far because it, it really does involve, because, you know, what happens is the, the ma- uh, lower-level manager, mid-level manager has authorized a certain, you know, technology or cybersecurity program. And then the CEO goes on a trip to Asia and wants to bring his insecure iPhone, and now the whole thing is going down in a pile. <laughs> you know, you've got the person with the most access, or the, let's say the, the uh, although finance people tend to be far more careful because they know they've got to guard the money. But, you know, you, if you have a breach of, this, of the CEO's equipment, you've got a real problem. And similarly, if we're just talk- even if we're talking about just a major technology initiative, these things tend to be, as I said previously in the conversation, they tend to be very um, multi-departmental. So if you have, and they, and they also, you know, change involves pain. Human beings don't like change. It's a normal part of the world. So unless you have guidance and leadership saying we're doing this, you know, generally these things don't happen and they don't happen well. That, you know, it's unfortunate truth, but it, it is, in my 20-some years of doing this, without higher-level buy-in to whatever larger-scale technology initiative you're attempting, it generally doesn't go very well. Hmm. Before I let you go, I want to circle back to our first topic, namely uh, the presence of women in the field, and ask you about uh, uh, something called She Leads Tech. Uh, something that you are involved in that, that apparently exists to work on this particular issue. Can you say a word about that? Absolutely. She Leads Tech is part of ISACA, which is a cybersecurity organization, and it is devoted to achieving gender balance of women in technology worldwide. And one of the issues we're working on right now has to do with retention, because I think, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, even if we get women into technology fields, they tend to, they tend to erode. So you have, this, you have this issue of women being, let's say, not attracted to technology fields, partly because representation isn't there. I mean, we gravitate towards people who look like us. We, we follow in the footsteps of someone we can identify with. Well, if you're facing a wall of people who don't look like you, the, the pre- profession itself becomes maybe something that's not your favorite to pursue. And then once women are in the profession, it, we don't do a great job of offering the things that, I, I'm going to use air quotes here, women need. In point of fact, this is a family problem. This is, raising children is a family problem. It's not a woman problem. However, 
in the real world, right now it is a woman problem. We know that women shoulder the, the, the vast majority of child-rearing responsibilities and homekeeping responsibilities. So in order to retain women, we, our professions need to offer the flexibility that that the that role in the family requires. And typically male professions tend to be far more rigid in terms of face time, time off, you know, child care, uh, flexible hours, work from home, and, and which is ironic because you would think technology would be one of the one of the most adaptable to those circumstances. Right, since technology uh, is such a valuable tool to make that so much more workable than it once was. Yeah, yeah, it's absolutely true. So, so uh, as a, I'm proud to be a part of She Leads Tech. It's a terrific organization, again, devoted to achieving gender balance for women in technology. Very good. Uh, Anna P. Murray uh, is uh, the author of uh, The Complete Software Project Manager, Mastering Technology from Planning to Launch and Beyond, published by Wiley. And if people want more information on what you do, uh, where should they look? You can go to our website, which is www.pmg-emedia.com. You can also look me up on Amazon, put a P in the middle of the name, Anna P. Murray, because it turns out there's a lot of Anna Murrays out there. (laughs) Very good. Anna P. Murray, thank you for joining me today on The Morning Show. This was fun. Thanks so much.